Hello everyone, and welcome to The Legend Makers. I'm your host, Phil, and with me today is special guest, my brother slash roommate. Over the course of these episodes, we're going to explore some popular stories we love and dive a little bit more deeply into the way that those stories can act as guides or tools for understanding the world around us. We're going to be drawing on a combo of philosophy, science, and religious thought to better explore those ideas. But at the end of the day, we don't really mean this to be an educational podcast. It's just for asking questions, starting interesting convos, and having fun. So hello, everyone. The last couple weeks, there has just been a lot going on in our lives, but... We are happy to be back and we're happy to be doing this episode. Actually, it's not the episode that we'd originally planned on doing. We have a Jurassic Park episode that's been brewing on the horizon for quite some time. That's my bad. And then we had plans to do a different chill episode where we talked about character tropes like kings and soldiers and leadership and stuff like that. The other day we just or we just suddenly had a brainwave about Infinity War of all movies. And so here we are. Yeah, we rewatched it last night. We rewatched it last night, fresh in our minds. Now, maybe we can, because I remember when this movie first came out, it was quite the controversial film. Really? It, it was, I think, because a lot of people didn't get oh, what it was yeah. trying okay, to we'll do. We'll get to that, I think. I think it's important that starting out here we can establish especially because in in the last episode we opened the episode talking about how we hated its sequel endgame (laughs) we should establish why we're discussing this movie what our perspective on it is how we're interpreting it and what our approach to the movie is because i think that this movie brings up a lot of really fascinating thematic points that we want to be talking about today, mm-hmm. but then unfortunately those points are never meta-narratively resolved, yet they are still interesting to think about. So... Well, wanna... I, yeah, I mean, we talked about in the last episode some of the problems we had with Endgame, uh, and I think the biggest one that's relevant to bring up here is just the fact that for us in our interpretation of the movie Infinity War, it's a film that's a setup, it's a part yes. one. And for some strange reason, Endgame does this big time jump, and narratively, it doesn't really follow up with anything that happened in Infinity War, all the nuances of the movie. We watch Infinity War as a part one for a movie that never got followed up. Yeah, of a two-part duology where the part two just simply does not exist. It seems to me, at least, like watching Infinity War has such clear goals and things that it's reaching and setting up. It's really baffling to me that Endgame doesn't follow up on so many of them. When we, and this is something that we discussed in the first episode, right? We have no idea what was or was not deliberate on the filmmakers' parts. Yeah. We can only assume and interpret, especially with something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where there are so many collaborators involved and there's a lot of studio pressure and other agendas and da-da-da-da-da. And so for a, a big event movie such as Infinity War, it's pretty impossible to have any clear understanding of why certain things were done the way that they were done and whether meta-narratively there was ever a vision for them 
all we can do is interpret yeah. what we want to get out of the movie, which is what we are doing. And from a writing coherence and meta narrative coherence and characterization perspective, yeah. and continuity and continuity of wider universe perspective, give our two cents and discuss. Which is why I think, as an extension of all of this, we're not saying that. Endgame didn't have fun moments, or that people are not allowed to like Endgame. We are hundred percent. If you like Endgame, good for you. As we will discuss, Infinity War started a series of character arcs or character storylines tied very directly to particular themes of sacrifice, selfless love, and this tension between the good of the collective versus the autonomy and choices of the individual. So I fully expected that what Marvel would end up doing in Infinity War would be to focus on the OG Avengers and like kind of flub that nuance mm -hmm. in the significance of other characters' relationship to Thanos as a villain, mm -hmm. as a personal villain, right? Yeah. And then it didn't. It very yeah. much focused on all the right characters in Infinity War, like Tony, Gamora, Nebula, Peter, and Wanda and Vision as, again, characters directly tied to the stone stories. Did I mention yeah. Thor? Yes, and, you and say Thor. Thor and, and Thor. Thor. Thor is also important. Directly tied yeah. to the Infinity War storylines and who have personal visceral stake in Thanos as a villain. And it did that and it was so good. And then Endgame did exactly what I thought that they were going to do the first time around. For me at least, I mean you know this. Yes. When I when we first saw Infinity War, it was like the perfect movie to me. Yeah, I was blown out of the water. Well, I... Because for me personally, because yeah. the one of the earliest my favorite comics still is the Infinity Gauntlet storyline where Thanos gets all the stones and does the snap, right? Yeah. Um, and I was dying for years before this movie came out for them to end the movie yes. with the Avengers losing and him snapping half the universe away. And when they actually did it and committed to it, I was really, really happy because I thought that was the only logical way to move the story forward. And I really liked that they built the entire film around developing Thanos's concept as a villain, mm -hmm. where not only was he just the right amount of charismatic and intriguing, he also had all of this like edge under, just underneath the surface where he you could see that he enjoyed torturing people, he really liked the fight, he wouldn't he wasn't just efficient and out to rule the world. He also wanted to hurt people and he enjoyed it. And there are all these hints in there. He was genuinely terrifying as a villain. Yeah, and I Josh Brolin gives Josh a really Brolin good performance. Josh Brolin gives a fantastic performance. I think for me, there have been few instances in a movie when I'm sitting in a movie theater and a villain in a movie genuinely scares me every time they're on screen and I mean since then we've watched this movie so many times that it do he doesn't quite inspire the same reaction yeah but going into this movie not at all expecting that they would commit to that kind of feel and genre of film yeah. well he feels a lot like Darth Vader to me yeah where you don't I mean I guess Darth Vader of the original, of the original trilogy, trilogy where you yeah, don't sorry. know a lot about about this guy and every time he shows up everyone goes running and yeah. everyone is totally screwed over it's our personal opinion and preference that has to do with this movie and i always joke that everything that i wanted for the movie was infinity war and everything that i didn't want was in endgame yes and it's just perfectly balanced as, as all things, things should, should be. be yeah you, you said that in the falcon and the soldier episode and i think that again everything that endgame did our complete 
disregard of it as a film <laughs> it is not to say that we don't think that movies that are installments in the MCU that have come after it have not done really great things. I mean, generally our philosophy with engaging with the MCU is that there are different sets of creative people working on different storylines and the MCU has certain systemic failings in terms of how it tells its stories because it plays the long game. It, it loses stuff in its storylines by trying to set up for future storylines. Yeah. And so it's very difficult to give absolute judgment on the value of an installment yeah, not, before you've seen things like that, 10 years, 10 down, years the line. down the line which is an objective flaw in their method i can i think i can it, say it's that it's a flaw and a strength in different ways it can be a strength i think from a from the perspective of integrity of storytelling yes, it is a flaw. a flaw yes true and it is completely fair for them to be called out on that because it's a money making really yeah. it's related to yeah. money making personally as a storyteller that bothers me. Mm -hmm. But I think that acknowledging that, it is also fair to say that oftentimes there will be installments that just really suck for whatever reason. Yeah. And then there will be things that come after them that absolutely elevate elements of them. That, yeah. that I think the problem that I have here is that, or that we have, is that Endgame is such a critical hinge. Yes. And I, I think this should be really clarified for this section of what yes. we're trying to get across here. We aren't the type of people who think that everything has to be catered to our tastes. Mm -hmm. The problem that we have with Endgame is something that I said right after we saw the movie. Yes. Was that Infinity War promised a lot yes. in its package. Yeah. Right? It, it was just to our tastes. Yes. And the fact that it was uh, intentionally incomplete and then it completely changed in its vision for what the story should be, that was what felt like a major blunder. If Infinity War had been just like Endgame and they had still been a coherent storyline. It just wasn't what I liked. I would enjoy it a lot more. I would be able to enjoy it in the way I enjoy Age of Ultron, where it's yeah, it has some War. it has some good elements. I don't think it's a perfect movie, but it can still be fun. You know, a lot of the MCU is like that. Yeah. But what what was really bothersome for us is just the the, the feeling that the story was kind of ignored, and that feels like a narrative failure in, mm -hmm. in the writing process. It feels like they didn't they either didn't know what they were doing or they compromised what they wanted to do for the sake of like fan service or studio pressure or something. We, we yeah. can't know. And I, I, that's just the point that's being made here is that uh, our opinion is entirely based on the fact that we were promised something and then it wasn't completed because yes. this is what I said when we watched Infinity War. I said, this was the perfect movie of all time. And it was like the perfect comic book movie. Yes. But it had that like name, that title only if it could be capitalized on. Yes. And because it wasn't, now it's in this kind of weird space for me where I really like it as its own movie, but I can't actually love it the same way I did when I first watched it. Because yeah. You every time you watch it, you come out of it frustrated because you want all of its points to be resolved exactly. and they just aren't. Yeah. And so that's There's what we're... There's just a void. That's just something that we needed to establish from the get-go because the movies are so dependent on each other. When we talk about Infinity War's themes, we are going to have to interpret a lot. Yes. We are giving our own takeaway from the story and what we like about it, even though it's only really there in potential form. Yes. And it's never actually a part of the the canon of the MCU. No. <laughs> I think what you mean is that, for example, you watch something like Star Wars and there is a very clear logic to the universe that dictates 
which characters are correct in their actions and positions and which characters aren't correct. Yeah. And unfortunately, with Infinity War, because it was meta-narratively never followed up on, there is no definitive answer as to whose position in the story, whose actions were in in the logic of the universe yeah. correct and like morally right. We aren't actually going to have really complete conclusions in this episode because the movies don't. And so we don't think it's fair to impose our own views onto the, the movie or the subject. We're exactly. just going to leave it as... A question, you know, like... Much to think about. Yeah. Much to think about. The main tension in Infinity War, that I see anyway, is between individual autonomy and a undefined collective good. Various different characters bring up the idea of collective good. And, you know, in some cases, it's like the universe will be wiped out. Mm -hmm. In other... So the universe not being wiped out is a collective good. Yeah. In other cases... It's a material collective good, so material prosperity that Thanos talks about. Like, all oh, your people were hungry, you were, like, going to bed hungry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I just, I can't talk about what Thanos talks about without doing it in a mocking voice. Mm -hmm. So the concept of collective good is not clearly defined, but very much present. And there is a tension between when are we allowed to sacrifice individual autonomy and individual life and wellness for the good of the collective, versus, you know, possibly jeopardizing the good of the collective for the sake of saving an individual or allowing an individual their choice to live. Maybe a good place to start here is just baseline define some of these positions, sociologically and philosophically speaking, based on a fast Google search. Collectivism is the practice or principle of giving a group priority over each individual in it. If I'm re remembering back to my grade 12 philosophy class and also reruns of The Good Place, this ties to the principle of utilitarianism, where utilitarianism is a theory of morality which advocates actions that foster happiness or pleasure and opposes actions that cause unhappiness or harm. When directed towards making social, economic, or political decisions, a utilitarian philosophy would aim for the betterment of society as a whole. Utilitarianism would say that an action is right if it results in the happiness of the greatest number of people in a society or a group. The good of the many over the good of the few, which is a phrase that's often used by Spock in Star Trek. So that phrase is a combination of collectivism and mm -hmm. utilitarianism. One of the issues that I've always found with utilitarian ethics is that the term good of, or even the more specific happiness and pleasure of, if not defined clearly and with nuance, can be hugely problematic. Are we deciding on a baseline material good? Is it subjective, personal, or experiential good? Or is it something more transcendent? In which case, that's very difficult to put a bar on and say that at this point, you know, there's good and at this point there's bad. If we are only speaking in physical, like material resource terms, at what point do we extend or break down that baseline of good into additional layers of pleasure or happiness? So we all have sustenance, shelter, etc. But do we have food that tastes good? You know, do we have expensive ingredients? Are our homes aesthetically pleasing? Etc. Etc. And then who is defining that? Right? Yeah. Who is given 
authority to say this is good and this is not good. Something to bring up here. I, I think that utilitarianism implies a material outlook um, mm -hmm. in its philosophy usually, but like any kind of construct, like philosophical construct, it usually needs to tie into other ideas to take form. And most commonly, it does tie into materialism. So generally speaking, when it talks about like maximizing happiness or pleasure, it's uh, a very kind of measurable economic, like in eco economics, you measure what are called utils as a unit, which is short, short for utility. Point of that is to be able to somehow calculate the optimal, because if you have an unbiased source like math, right, simple calculus, yeah, there will be many memes then, in this yeah, episode. Then there isn't any one particular person dictating what's good or bad for everyone else. On the flip side, you have individualism, which is defined as a social theory favoring freedom of action for individuals over collective or state control. Now, I think individualism also has some problems because it can very much bleed into a misunderstanding of the mm -hmm. principle of interdependence, mm -hmm. which is scientifically uh, documented that both on a social, ecological, we've talked about this before, yeah. um, there is strong interdependence amongst everything in both the natural and the more metaphysical mm -hmm. sides of the world. And so to over-rely on independence of the individual unit runs the risk of not engaging with that system of interconnectedness mm -hmm. and as a result making decisions that are harmful both for the individual and the collective. Yeah. I mean a, a great example of that can be the economic concept of the tragedy of the commons mm -hmm. which I mean you can look it up if you want it in more detail but the general idea is it's a very uh, commonly used example for why individual choices can be made without the knowledge of how the overall system works and they can be optimal decisions from the perspective of the individual, but when they all combine together, it causes everyone to be worse off. Mm -hmm. um, Which, interestingly, that is what happens in Infinity War. Well, exactly. That's It's, it's kind of a big tragedy in that like, perspective. With respect to individualism and collectivism, both of them, I think, can. Be, it's, this is probably historically very evident, uh, but it's worth mentioning. Both of them can lack or have a, an element of whatever you want to call it, humanity, justice, truth, whatever, that can make it harmful or not harmful, I think. Because you mentioned how both have problems. And those problems are, again, in what they're combined with. Yes. So individualism that's combined with uh, an overemphasis, especially in the modern economic world, maximization of personal benefit and very material good at the expense of all others, is not like the kind of classic social Darwinist view on like being the top of the food chain and all that kind of stuff. That isn't necessary for a healthy ecosystem. That's a choice that you make. Similarly, in collectivism, you can oppress people or not. Um, and that's a choice that's being made in, in the structure of the system. So I think that's worth mentioning. And, and I think that ties into the next point here is that you have this other duality other than individual autonomy and collective good, which is unity and diversity, where unity represents the ability of the, the different parts to come together and take collective action, make choices, figure out what the collective good requires the individuals to contribute to. Have a vision. Exactly. But you also need 
the differentiation of individual agents within that system to give it sort of diversity. And in biology, at least, there's a very important metaphor of genetic diversity. Mm -hmm. Or just the human body in general. Yeah, where you need uh, a difference between the component parts so that the system doesn't stagnate, so that it has the ability to adapt, all of these other things that are necessary for a living structure to continue living, right? Personally, I think this is one of those philosophical issues that requires really deep thought and reflection and a comprehensive understanding of why the two sides of each are necessarily interdependent and not separate and distinct. We often see appeals, I think, to one or the other of these positions with respect to both individuals, populations, and governments' behaviors and decision-making in society. And I think such appeals in the context of other flaws in reasoning, as I think you brought up, miss some other positions or philosophical understandings of things like human nature, Mm -hmm. general purpose, to life if it does exist or does not exist basic critical thinking skills you know appeals to authority appeals to like all of these different flaws of reasoning when combined with those things appeals to like social responsibility for the collective good versus my body my choice can be easily taken in flawed and extreme directions that are actually not beneficial to Mm -hmm. harmonious and healthy social existence or individual independent existence before we get into and i think this is a tension that has been the tension between collective good versus individual autonomy is something that has existed in mcu movies prior to infinity war to varying Mm -hmm. degrees of like nuance nuance and coherence probably the best example and i think steve is generally a really good example of a particular philosophical position characterization wise but the best example prior to infinity war is steve in captain america the winter soldier who is struggling against the idea that shield this is before he realizes that they're infiltrated by an evil organization, has decided that for the sake of the collective good, they are going to, you know, preemptively sacrifice the lives of people that they've deemed threats, you know, well, using this elaborate... it's sort of like a minority system. report type thing where you, you want to stop the criminals before they can even commit crimes. Exactly. And it's, it's all in the name of helping the world be safe. Exactly. Right. But but Steve is in the position of being against that. He thinks that he thinks that it's not just a slippery slope, but in its in and of itself, it isn't right. Yes. He it's feels a like flawed position and a He feels like this isn't even position. true safety. There is yeah. an inherent problem with this. And I think I mean, this is a personal take, but personally I agree with him. I think that that kind of safety through negative course correction of call what is bad. Yeah or any, any kind of good thing through calling what mm-hmm. is bad is always the more dangerous approach as opposed yeah. to good thing through positive and constructive work. We talked a little bit yeah, about I, this I mean, in, it also in the last episode. It also often turns out to not work well because you're going to run into, it's not, not going to go as smoothly as you want it to, mm-hmm. to call everything. And when you get rid of everything that's bad, what happens when new bad arises that, within the good that you thought would remain, right? Exactly. It's not like it's a process that's ever going to end. You're going to have to keep on culling and it's never really going to stop. 
And that's not even getting into, well, who's doing the culling? How yeah. can we who trust has, yeah, them? Who has the finger on the button? Right? Who has their finger on the button? And I think that in Winter Soldier, interestingly enough, Steve makes the choice to sacrifice this, this potential collective good for the sake of retaining the autonomy of individuals. More particularly, what he chooses to do is to demolish S.H.I.E.L.D., which is a institution that has a lot of infrastructure and it's, it's necessary for the functioning of the defense systems of the world or whatever. He takes it completely down uh, because he believes personally that it's wrong. Yes. Not necessarily because he thinks that like the world wants it to happen, right? He makes the choice personally at an individual level to sacrifice this big institution that represents people's safety because he thinks it's corrupt and it's no longer functioning. Yes. Um, and I think he also makes other smaller choices in that movie that relate to the same thing. Like I think a kind of dumb but similar point is that, you know, Bucky is the winter soldier who has killed people and continues to kill people. And so, not to this day, I mean, <laughs> in the narrative. <laughs> he, he no longer carries lethal weapons, which I think is very cute. But, but continue. My point is that in that movie, for the sake of the potential that can still be in Bucky, Cap chooses not to kill him. Yeah, right, which technically is jeopardizing yeah, the collective good. He jeopardizes this guy, like he disappears into the wilderness exactly. and could very well be killing more people. Exactly. He chooses to not fight and stop the, the Winter Soldier who is yes. a villain because he believes that it's his friend deserves another chance. No, I think that's right? not that's not a stupid point at all. I think that is fundamental to Steve's character. That he, that he, is the choice yeah. that he consistently makes. And it's why I mean his whole narrative that's so integrally tied to Bucky as a thing yeah. that exists is that philosophical yeah. position that and he brings it up in infinity war which we'll talk about where yeah. he says we don't trade lives well and then that same tension continues into civil war with the sokovia accords the major conflict i think is very well described in the earlier parts of the movie the problem that is in this in terms of this tension right the whole issue of this accords is constantly discussed between um what cap's philosophy is with respect to you know, personal autonomy yes. and all those kinds of things, which is something that we're, is relevant to the topic today. But the problem with that movie is his no one's philosophy has ever really proven to be right or wrong. Yeah, Tony, nor, nor are they elaborated. Yeah, upon. Tony has valid points, but both characters kind of weirdly seem to be operating more based on emotion and attachment. And yes, at the end of the movie, they kind of have this whole like, slap fight based on emotion and attachment it isn't actually because of the accords no it's it's, very it, it has nothing to do with their philosophical positions which are fascinatingly two sides of of th this coin yeah. of philosophical position brought up again in infinity war yeah. in a different way yeah. and i think and sorry i just want to clarify i don't mean that in the concept of civil war either side has to turn out to be right no yeah i think the problem with that movie is that it doesn't actually continue the conversation yes. and use that as the mechanism of conflict, yes. right? The, it, the movie uses Bucky and Zemo as mechanisms of conflict, even though it sets up the accords as yes. being the conflict point, right? Yes. Which is what's strange for me because the question is really interesting at the beginning of the movie. And then after the airport fight, everyone gets captured and then it just kind of ends. And afterwards, Tony and Steve seem okay with each other until Tony just decides to murder Bucky for no reason. <laughs> 
Well, it's he not, has like, he has a reason. He has a quote, quote unquote, unquote reason, reason, but there are many reasons why that reason does not make sense. Um, yeah, it's very strange to have Tony try and murder someone as a character at all, like baseline. Tony's surface level character is often not fully in control of himself. He acts impulsively. He's emotional. He's reckless. All of those things, but the core of his character established in Iron Man one and continues continuing through everything else, especially something that shines through a lot in Infinity War, which is something I love about the movie, is how caring he is. Yes, he, his whole modus operandi is looking out for other people. Well, because in the very first Iron Man movie, his experience of being a terrible person and causing so much harm to others, and then he nearly dies, and his entire philosophy becomes like, I should be dead, right? The rest of my life needs to be dedicated at whatever personal cost to me, to protecting others yes. and, and he, making up for what I've done. And right? he does so in flawed ways. It's not yeah, to he makes say mistakes. that he, and you know, he's systemically situated in a way that is not always beneficial to everyone in the world. And he, yeah. you know, makes choices that are with narrow scope yeah. of vision. But, but for me, it's very odd for a character that has that core yes. to actively try and personally kill someone. Yes, and it's, in a, it's like very jarring. In an act of personal revenge, yes. especially since Tony's relationship with his parents is also so fraught Yeah, that uh, it's, it's kind of strange for that to be like a trigger point for him to just decide to kill someone with his bare hands yes. right in front of that person's best friend. It's just yes. odd. It's, it's it's bad it's, writing, it's Scoob. Strange writing. It's I don't bad like writing, it. Scoob. But um, which goes back to our earlier point about sometimes the MCU makes some choices, and you just have to take a deep breath and move on, which we are clearly because, not doing. Once but again, yeah, <laughs> I think in contrast to Steve's decision in Winter Soldier to sacrifice potential collective good for yeah individual autonomy um, or individual principle yeah. let's say is in black panther killmonger's position well not necessarily is... in contrast parallel but, parallel but, but, on the but interestingly side. yeah so cap's choice narratively is justified whereas killmonger's is wrong or villainous i know a lot of people like his perspective but in the context of the movie it's supposed to be very clear that t'challa is in the right and Killmonger is not in the right. Well, and the reason why Killmonger is not in the right. So first let's establish where what he's like what where he's coming yeah, from. Yeah, go ahead. So his idea is that it's okay if I cause war uh, between many nations of the world. Yeah. And like cause harm to many people for the benefit of my people. My people. Yeah. Um, but he feels like his people have suffered, he's suffered and it's justified to cause a global race war and kill a lot of people for what he believes in to come to fruition. Right. Right. His position is problematic because it goes back to this issue of it take like it it's almost a similar take as the shield trying to stop things yeah. from bad things from happening before they're happening but the inverse of it yeah. it's like proactively trying to cause bad things to stop bad things from continuing yeah whereas with steve's position and i think one could argue that steve's actions don't necessarily cause good things for everyone involved yeah. but the the moral principle of it his understanding of the value of human beings is a far more under universal 
principle of all human beings have individual value mm. as opposed to my moral priorities or a select group mm. of human beings have value over others and I am acting accordingly. So I think this comes back to the point that you brought up earlier that both collectivism and individualism, utilitarianism as an extension of collectivism, are often hinged on other axiological and ontological premises that whoever is putting them into practice has. Mm -hmm. And their relative good or harm is often, again, related to the other stuff, yeah. the, the additional philosophy. Let's talk about Infinity War. Well, first of all, I think something that I like is that Infinity War marries the two sides of the issue into a single narrative. And it gives you, I think, the most balanced version of that solution. Where even in, in even in the Winter Soldier, the ending is sort of up in the air. Cap believes it's the right thing to do, but Fury disagrees. And everyone else is just like so tired with the situation, they just want to be rid of it. And the, the situation has consequences that they don't intend. Like it isn't as though they make the perfect choice in that film. No, but I think Steve often makes War, choices where they're good, but also he he hasn't really thought through what's going to happen afterwards. The practical yeah, elements the practical of it, elements. right? What Infinity War does really well is balance the two priorities in its heroes, mm -hmm. um, and then also present a villain who contrasts really well with them. So maybe we can go through what we mean by that in terms of the actual storyline. Yes. Okay. So as we said, there are clear themes of sacrifice of one for many versus not sacrificing any individual over another throughout the entirety of Infinity War. The two key storylines are Peter and Gamora and Wanda and Vision. The theme also comes up between Doctor Strange and Tony and Gamora and Nebula and Thanos and Gamora in a warped way that we'll discuss later. In a, in a reverse way. In a reverse way. And then finally, Steve's we don't trade lives philosophy is a clear point that comes up in the movie. Let's break each of these examples down. So for in the cases of Peter and Gamora and Wanda and Vision, the sacrifice of the individual is entirely an autonomous choice on the part of that individual. Mm -hmm. Gamora and Vision volunteer. volunteer to sacrifice their lives for mm -hmm. what they understand to be the good of the collective. Mm -hmm. and, and when we say Gamora's sacrifice, we mean when she asks Peter to kill her. Not yes, not when on. Thanos throws her off the death cliff. That's That's the other choice that's being made later. We'll yes. talk about that after. So... Yeah, Gamora asking Peter to kill her if Thanos gets his hands on her, and Vision begging Wanda to destroy the stone, thereby destroying him, are, as you said, entirely voluntary choices made on the part of the individual out of their desire to protect and to contribute positively or have some meaningful yeah, to save the, to, the people to they save, love as to, well both, as everyone yeah, else. To, to save both the people they love and everyone else yeah it's both a, a both a personal choice and also a choice that's principled and noble yes quote unquote and i think as an extension of that peter and wanda are also making a sacrifice mm -hmm. and Again, that is also an autonomous choice that they are mm. making. They could easily make the selfish choice and say, no way, Jose, I'm yeah. not going to do that. I can't deal and, with it. And they both make the heroic and choice. And they both, of... they both make the selfless choice yeah. of autonomously 
accepting significant other. Their significant their I was gonna say lover and then I was yeah. like, that's a weird term. And then I was gonna say beloved and I was like, that's way too melodramatic. <laughs> um both apply, but whatever. This movie was big on romance and I loved it for it. Yeah. But they they agree yeah. to do that for the person they love. Well which is a sacrifice. Which for is them. a sacrifice for them sacrificing on their part. What's dearest to them. Exactly. In Strange and Tony's case, it's a little bit different. So Doctor Strange originally says to Tony in their Donut of Doom, he's like, if it comes to saving you or the kid or the Time Stone, I'm saving the Time Stone. You guys can go to hell. Yeah. Right? That's his principled position. But then later when Thanos has wrecked them all and... Well, Strange has the visions of the future or whatever. He had, prior to that, he's had his visions of the future. And... Thanos comes to kill Tony for the stone and Strange is then, after having his visions of, of how they win, prepared to sacrifice the stone for the sake of saving Tony's life, which is an interesting, it has an interesting implication because Strange has seen the one way that they will win. And so one has to wonder, meta-narratively, right, what does that mean for yeah. his choice not to let someone else die mm -hmm. for the sake of the quote-unquote collective good, right? Mm -hmm. And Strange is a very pragmatic character. He's not an emotional person the way that some other characters are. Yeah. And so one wouldn't expect of him to just let someone live in that kind of scenario without good reason. Mm -hmm. Now, good like philosophical yeah. reason. Now, a similar thing happens in a slightly different flavor for Gamora and Nebula in the scene where Thanos tries to get the location of the Soul Stone out of Gamora, where he's torturing Nebula in yeah. front of her and Gamora cannot abide by the idea that her sister is being hurt, even though you can like see it in Nebula's eyes where she's like, don't tell him, don't tell him, even yeah. as she's like dying. dying. Um, and so Gamora is incapable of making the choice to sacrifice someone else against their will for, again, collective greater good. Yeah. Even though Gamora herself, you've seen a lot of her, she is a pragmatic person, right? Yeah. She's willing to die, mm -hmm. um, but she's not willing yeah. to let other people die. Yeah. And I think uh, the last one that of this category that you've thrown... Yes, I was just going to bring that up. Uh, which is, again, similar situation where Thanos is torturing Thor to get the yeah, Space Thanos... Stone from... The Tesseract from Loki. Loki is a character who cares for his brother. I mean, I think a big part of all those three scenes that are also important to the narrative is how Thanos as a villain uses the hero's love for one another against them. Yes. The way he manipulates them, the way he tortures them is intentional. Yes. Right? And it makes you hate him all, all, all that more. Yes. But it also reflects not only his evilness, but also his pragmaticness where he's just willing to do whatever to get what he wants he's willing to torture people however he has to and he just kind of does it consistently without giving it a second thought it's just second nature to him yes i and i think that that scene with thor and loki as the opening scene to the movie is also fascinating especially given how consistently loki as a character has not made the selfless choice in the past yeah but in that case he can't abide by his brother's life being lost for whether it be collective good or his own personal mm -hmm. um, safety, right? Yeah. Thanos and Gamora is a fascinating point in the movie. I say well, fa fascinating sort of because it makes me upset and I don't want to call it anything else. I, I think that scene is really important yes. because it's the critical reverse point 
where it's Thanos at his most evil. Yes. Because he's making this choice for the sake of the collective good against the will of the person he's sacrificing. And it's like a microcosm of his whole plan, yeah. which is to kill half, half the population for the sake of the other half. Right? Exactly. And that's, it's the exact same choice. It's against the will of those people, but that's just kind of a small reflection of the bigger, the bigger picture, right? It's, it's just a very nice parallel. And I think what makes it even more narratively tragic is the fact that Gamora was willing to die anyway. She was willing to die on her terms, and but she was not... Yeah, but and somehow he, he spins it so that yeah, it's she just is the completely most, powerless. It's the most depressing thing to possibly happen to her. Yes, and now I think at this point in the recording, we can pause and say that one of the reasons why Endgame is just the worst is because... In the context of Infinity War as a setup that could have meta narrative significance in its next installment, Gamora's death does not have to end up feeling meaningless. It she does not have to end up feeling like this girl has spent the last five years of her life fighting to get away and have autonomy and become a good person and yeah. like find love, and now that's just all you know tragically stripped away from her and from she's her by her childhood abuser by her childhood abuser, and now she's dead at the bottom of a cliff permanently you know so i think in in a world where this movie got a good continuation continuation that story could have been really powerful where gamora well i I think more than if if it resolved it by like this is canceling thanos's action well not even that i think the big thing for me is the, the way the movie is set up where basically I mean, this is so obvious in its structure. It's yes. like baffling to me once again. This is the number one thing I hate about Endgame that it's never followed up on is it seems that at this point, you don't know the logic of the stones and the soul stone is the explicitly... Stones. I know, this, the stones. This, the soul stone is explicitly stated to have a logic to it where you have to lose that which you love. And every scene where a stone is gained or lost involves someone losing that which they love yes. for the sake of what's going on yeah right loki and thor has to do with the space stone um the the reality one has uh peter willing to kill gamora mind stone with vision and wanda the time stone with strange strange and tony, and, tony and then the soul stone with gamora and thanos every single one has that trade-off yes right so you would think that the logic of the stones has something to do with sacrifice. Yes. Right? With the fact that Endgame just completely doesn't think at, at all about how the stones work or why every every stone gained in the previous movie required some sort of sacrifice is really baffling to me. Like why is that the case? Why do you set that up so clearly? Was it just for fun? Like I don't I don't get yeah, it. Yeah, one has to ask. Because because it seems like a great resolution point for why the only way they could win is by losing would mean would be for the, the the narrative structure to involve some sort of logic to the stones where sacrifice is necessary for it to occur right so for example it might be that gomora has to die but her death isn't in vain because it needed to happen for some particular meta narrative reason or something do you see what i'm saying yes there 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 has to be a reason for for why all those sacrifices happen other than just well, I always like the theory, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I always like the theory that per the soul stones, you have to lose that which you love. Because in every single scenario, the characters, the heroes, yeah. lost something 
or acted out of actual love. Mm-hmm. Whereas Thanos's version of love was very warped and and yeah. horrifying. The gauntlet, for whatever reason, doesn't work for Thanos going into the next movie past that snap. Like yeah. it starts acting out against him because well, because think- of like some some fantastical reason where he like he he didn't earn the stones through purity well, of heart. I right? Don't, I don't know if that's now, necess- well. Can I can I make a point? I here? know that that might not track with the comments. Well, no, because the, the comments. I know, but I was going to make a point with respect to that exactly. Yes. Where I think, although in the movie, I think it's interesting that uh, like the soul stone has that rule. And it seems like it's implied that the other stones also have something along that line where, where everyone has to make a sacrifice for each stone. Uh, also, it is implied that the stones have a degree of intelligence. Yes. Or at least the Mind Stone does and the Soul Stone do because the Mind Stone is warning vision of Thanos at number at a number of times throughout the movie. Even if you go with like the comics which have the stones operate with a sense of structure to them, but they're still inanimate objects technically... I think what could very easily happen is that Thanos's win at the end of this movie going into the next one has some sort of cosmic consequence of him having upset some sort of balance by getting the stones in a way that is unnatural or somehow tearing at the fabric of reality somehow. Getting each of the stones through a sacrifice that wasn't meant for him. Yes. Right? Yeah. A sacrifice that was meant for someone else. Yeah. Right? And him using the stones isn't correct, so to speak, because it's those people who should have the capacity to use the stones. You see what I'm saying? Thanos needs to be shown as a villain to have done something wrong or something unnatural that the heroes can capitalize on to defeat him in some way. Or else, in the next movie, it's set up such that Thanos' plan was perfect. He did everything he needed to do they even have that stupid line about the whales. It makes me so yeah, mad. Yeah, it's so strange. Like, oh, the world is actually, like, get better off in some ways now. Thanos just retires and is happy. And, I, I mean, he does that in the comics, but what I mean by that is he retires and then they just go and kill him and it's never resolved like, yeah. at the very beginning of the movie. And then they fight another version of him and use him as a punching bag, even though it's just completely unrelated. So it's just, once again, that's the problem I have with it is that all of these sacrifices end up having no real meaning yes. in a storytelling way. In a meta-narrative sense. Yeah. Now, having said all of that, putting aside the continued mystery of Thanos's actual motivations and his generally and heavily implied psychopathy, it's interesting to me that in the context of considering individual autonomy versus collective good, his concept of good is time and again defined either totally ambiguously or in terms of material prosperity. Whereas Peter and Gamora and Wanda and Vision approach sacrifice very explicitly in the context of love, which is more of a transcendent or metaphysical human experience. What, what, what's important isn't the fact that they're making a personal sacrifice or one for the sake of the collective. It's, it's the underlying framework behind why the choice is being made. Because I think in real life, and this is something we mentioned, you can have, you know, like suicide bombing where a person is making a personal sacrifice for the sake of something they believe in, which is terrible. And you can also have, you know, a dictator sort of like Thanos, make the choice to kill people or to harm others for the sake of what they perceive as good in a collective sense. And those can be evil, but they're, they're, 
being made with other philosophical assumptions and other, you know, hatefulness and, and reasoning behind, I don't know, racism or, you know, ideologies that fuel that kind of decision making. So what's important is the, the structure behind it. And I think that that's important for me in terms of this story with respect to Thanos's motivations. Quote, unquote, philosophy and motivation. Yeah, and his motivations. And uh, I, I think that his motivations definitely aren't what he presents. Um, yes, he is an unreliable narrator. I find it fascinating that people can watch that movie and well, think that he is supposed to be a reliable narrator. Again, another problem I have with Endgame is that he's never shown to be an unreliable narrator in the films. I think, but also like no, he's you... heavily implied to be, like heavily implied to be. But if you're a more casual viewer of the MCU and you don't really care that much about the Guardians, you can take what he says at face value in the movie. And it seems a lot more justified than if you knew his character well. Like I, I, I'll... No, like, I still don't see it. You know, you're watching the man torture and, like, murder well, people no, in front not, of your not, eyes. Not to say that his... Willfully and with malintent. No, I know. People... And you're like, but he made some points, though. No, people don't say that his actions are justified, but people often say that his point about overpopulation ah. is true. Now, Classic. I think this is the thing that I want to talk about is... And I mean that you can, other people have talked about this online, but I think it's worth mentioning. Thanos' whole, it's a simple calculus thing with population and it, it's been identified and it can be identified with this economist, famous economist called Thomas Malthus. What a name. Yeah, I know. Very interesting man. Uh, and he has this whole ideology called Malthusianism that came out of his work. And it takes different forms, but ordinary, the kind of the baseline of what Malthus said originally had to do with animal environment, animal populations and ecosystems. And there's this idea of a population trap or what was called a Malthusian trap, where essentially the amount of food in a system is uh, limited or it's growing at a linear rate, whereas the population often grows at an exponential rate. And so his theory was that, and it's been observed in animal populations, that uh, human beings go through a cycle of there being enough food and so people can reproduce a lot more, especially poor people, he thought, uh, because they're too uneducated to know what's good for themselves. Classic. So they, they have a lot of kids and when the population rises, there's not enough resources. And so usually his, his stuff, he would say that like wars and famines and like pestilence would occur because of overpopulation and that would naturally reduce the population again like there would be a culling process and he didn't say that it was enjoyable or good but he said that it was necessary and that it was an inevitability and so i guess that's the point where he differs from thanos where thanos is actively trying to cull the population whereas malthus is like it's just gonna happen you have to let it happen malthus was a christian so he would advocate that people shouldn't have sex. <laughs> yeah, well, it was like you should be self-control and like abstinent so that like you This was reduce... before the age of birth control. Yeah, you like reduce human suffering as a part of that. Like when you don't have too many kids and you don't eat a lot and you're kind of a modest human being, it reduces the number of people that have to die later on due to overpopulation. Now there are more recent versions of his ideas called like neo-Malthusians. They, they lean more towards the idea of like population control or like genetically controlling population, which I think is a part of, is it 1984? 
or like Brave New World or one of those. I think it's Brave New World. I have yeah. not read either of those, either. unfortunately. Sorry, we've exposed ourselves to be uncultured. But the point is, is that there are different modern ideas like that have to do with how population can, should be controlled for the sake of this stuff. I mean, I know like Bill Gates or whatever, people talk about this stuff. Billy Goats. Yeah. <laughs> what a man. Malthus's theory was never actually accurate. Although he made some points, nothing he predicted and many other people also predicted, none of them has have come to pass. Like many economic theories and models, his kind of point is to view the world from a very simple lens where he really oversimplifies population and is like, well, you know, overpopulation is going to happen and then it's going to result in like suffering. The answer to things is usually a lot more complex than that. I think the point that he makes is still something to think about, but the answer involves human innovation and, and agriculture and like the technology that has developed since the 1800s and you know people's education, which he could have never conceived of in his time uh, because you know most people were farmers and like peasants and some things that have been seen with respect to education, you know, you have industrialized countries end up having lower pop or lower birth rates because you know, like infant mortality goes down and so uh, families don't have as many kids because they know they're going to survive they don't work on farms as much when women have more of a career when they have more autonomy they tend to have less children so all are all of these are things that have naturally changed the course of Malthus's predictions like we have a ton more capacity for food production than he could have ever imagined. Generally speaking, his theory is wrong. And this is kind of what was strange for me with Infinity War moving into Endgame, uh, was that Thanos' whole thing is never actually shown to be wrong in Endgame. Like, there's this whole bit where... They just forget about it. Well, exactly. Well, there's this whole bit where Doctor Strange is talking to him and he's like, let me guess, you're home. Oh, classic. And yeah, the great meme. And describes this whole thing of how his planet was so great and then he said overpopulation and then I guess within his lifetime the planet collapsed from overpopulation and, and it was now eight degrees off its axis and, and now he's the Not only survivor sus at I know all. very sus it's like I don't know why that the movie it's very well done in Infinity War it's like oh spooky you know he yes. says that it was overpopulation and he survived his planet but if you know anything about Thanos why would you believe him like yeah that does not justify why the planet is so destroyed yeah. of just overpopulation. Um, and also, I mean, knowing Thanos' character from the comics, on his homeworld, Thanos is like a black sheep. Like, everyone hates him because he's such an asshole and because he looks weird. <laughs> like, all of his siblings, I think, are really beautiful and he's got, like, the nutsack chin. <laughs> Classic. Honestly, every single... I know, and I, and I don't want to get into this now because this is not the point of this podcast, but when the movie first came out and everybody thought it was popular to hate on Peter Quill for no reason at all, every single one of that man's insults against Thanos <laughs> in this movie... Godly tear, unparalleled. I they love, are yeah. so good. I love the grimace joke. The grimace joke. He literally looks just like grimace. Yeah. Anyway, props to my boy for get, like hitting the nail on the head. Continue. So yeah, the problem that I have is that you never really find out what actually happened to his home world because the way it's set up, it's just okay. Since it's never addressed in Endgame, most people who are casual viewers would just assume that Thanos is telling the truth that his planet. As a villain, his motivation is his planet failed due to overpopulation, so now he never wants it to happen again. That makes him seem like a, a An okay dude. guy. Well, it, it makes him seem like he has a tragic backstory. 
it's like, oh, he suffered, and so now he's trying to prevent that, even though he's insane, which is completely not in line with what his character is supposed to be in the comics. Like, yeah. his character in the comic, his planet is alive and well. He's just exiled because they hate him. Because he's the worst. Because he wanted so, to kill a bunch so of So the people. fact that in the Marvel Universe, his planet is destroyed, and it's like eight degrees off its axis or whatever, and it's really messed up, the fact that that's never addressed as to what actually happened makes his motivations really unclear because from how I interpreted Infinity War watching it was that he's clearly hiding something. His actual whole bit about culling the population isn't a genuine desire to do good, but rather it's his desire and obsession with controlling things and exerting power over others. And it's 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 like it lines up with his identity as an abuser to Gamora and Nebula and just how he is throughout. Like, he's always manipulative, he's always controlling. Well, he's a lot more dictatorial than he is exactly. anything else. I mean, it, it, it. even if Thanos were not just the worst, any philosophy that allows for active sacrifice of other people for an arbitrarily defined good yeah. is hugely at risk of falling in line with bully-type mentality yeah. or a dictatorial yeah, oppression. That's what Sinos' character is from the comics. He's just the universe's biggest bully. Yes. Right? And I think that they got really close to capturing that perfectly. By no means should you ever sympathize with Thanos or feel like... No, I'm, I'm being serious. Like, his character from the comics and what he should be in this movie, what he came off to me like when I first watched Infinity War was he is just the worst, you know? He's supposed to be the biggest villain in the Marvel Universe yeah. at this point in the story. The whole issue, like the whole thing with Malthus and the material means and limits of any system is not an unwarranted discussion. And sacrifice for the sake of material equilibrium is also not an unwarranted discussion. You have to balance a system that allows everyone to prosper and that requires letting go of certain material benefits or, for lack of a better word, extravagances, right? Um, except, I mean, I don't think we, we're going to sit and define all of that here because that's a very complicated discussion. Yeah, it's, it's also more technical and academic. It's also more technical and academic. However, I think material sacrifice, even in the context of the movie, you can think of material sacrifice as, okay, I lose person beloved to me, right? Or I lose my physical life. But there is another, I think it's a, this is a good place to kind of reflect a little bit on the philosophical nature of sacrifice as a concept, where there are other ideas of sacrifice in the context of the quote-unquote greater good that have defined it as transformation of self. So growth and transformation count as a type of sacrifice that is not necessarily material, and pure material sacrifice doesn't necessarily take into account the dynamic nature of the human condition and the constant capacity of human beings for growth, connection, education, and innovation that you brought up with something that Malthus just did not think about. When I say the dynamic nature of the human condition, I'm talking, we discussed it in the Wonder Woman episode, this idea of interconnectedness and the way in which human beings can touch one another's lives can transform into something better. I, we talked about it in the Star Wars episode as well. Purely material sacrifice for the context of the greater good does not take into account the hugely complex system of behaviors, impulses, growth, decisions, 
lives, etc., that happen in the sphere of that level of more immaterial and intellectual, academic, emotional, spiritual side of human existence. Now, I wanted to bring up to this definition of sacrifice as transformation of self, a passage from a book called Promulgation of Universal Peace, which is a transcribed series of talks and writings from early 20th century scholar and holy man Abdu'l-Bahá. So he says, quote, if you plant a seed in the ground, a tree will become manifest from that seed. The seed sacrifices itself to the tree that will come from it. The seed is outwardly lost or destroyed, but the same seed which is sacrificed will be absorbed and embodied in the tree, its blossoms, fruit, and branches. If the identity of that seed had not been sacrificed to the tree, which became manifest from it, no branches, blossoms, or fruits would have been forthcoming. When you look at the tree, you will realize that the perfections, blessings, properties, and beauty of the seed have become manifest in the branches, twigs, blossoms, and fruit. Consequently, the seed has sacrificed itself to the tree. Had it not done so, the tree would have not come into existence. Now, this is really interesting to think about in terms of a seed being the tree in potential form. So it's not that the seed is a separate entity from the tree and is being killed or, or destroyed for the sake of the tree manifesting. The tree grows naturally out of the seed, which had all of the pre-existing properties for the tree to happen. And I think that it's fascinating to think about sacrifice for the greater good through a lens of humanity facilitating a context in which individuals can transform into better versions of themselves and as such be more proactive, more productive, be better to one another, be more educated, be more um, compassionate, be more just, be more giving, be more generous, be more connected, or like be more in innovative, right? All of these different things, which I think goes back to what I mentioned when we were talking about Steve's position in Winter Soldier, where this view on sacrifice for the collective good, this seed and tree analogy, is a proactive perspective to betterment for the collective good, as opposed to a negative, let's get rid of the bad perspective for sacrifice for the greater good. Um, and it is interesting to me that in the case of Infinity War, Gamora is a character who really has grown as a person over the last several movies, like from Guardians 1 to Infinity War. She has undergone that kind of transformation where mm -hmm. all of those wonderful qualities, like her nobility and her heroism, were there in her from the very first movie. And as a result of being exposed to love and compassion and kindness and good things, right, a family, she was able to and we'll, we'll have a Guardians episode at a later date because I love the Guardians so much and I think there's a lot of value to their story. But she transformed as a result and in that transformation was then capable of contributing to betterment of, of the collective, both in her guardianing, like in her heroism as one of the Guardians, but also, you know, in her impulse to sacrifice her actual life for the collective good. Now, again, as we discussed, unfortunately, because 
Endgame never gave her sacrifice meta narrative meaning. I don't know what Guardians three will do. We'll see. All the all the next installments in in Phase four have done their best to kind of do if, good things in spite of Endgame, but they have the setup of both Adam Warlock and Gamora being sacrificed to the Soul Stone, and literally in the comics, Gamora and Adam Warlock meet in the Soul Realm. So if they don't do that in Guardians three somehow, I will like. Give, I will never watch another MC movie again. <laughs> I'll, I'll make that statement we, now. I'll we, make that commitment. We have commitment. this in, in writing. This is, yeah, this is this is. I'm saying it here for posterity. <laughs> I will never watch another MCU property. In the event that this movie actually had a meta narrative follow up and she wasn't just straight up fridged, it would have been a really interesting metaphor that Gamora was underwent that sacrifice both in the seed and tree realm and also in in the literal sense. I think this also ties to the fact that growth and transformation, as we've discussed in previous episodes, is a natural part of life and should not be something frightening. Um, I think that that can frame to a degree this idea, which I personally, is a conclusion that I've come to for the issue of sacrifice in the context of groups or communities, that we should consider how to nurture living conditions in which individuals are naturally inclined towards sacrifice of their benefit for the collectives, but that it is never ever forced upon them by institutions or others whose priority should be to look out for the individuals. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that I, I say this at the level of a community or a group, because where we are at right now as a society, it's very hard to implement that at a governmental level. And this is not a yeah, discussion yeah. of politics or or um, modes of economics. governance or economics, but I'm talking like grassroots ground up. If you have a community around you, how do you design the community such that individuals are looking to give of themselves to others, but it's sustainable. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, for me, this is what makes sense, that you you nurture a culture and a capacity in a community where every given individual is looking out for mm -hmm. the benefit of others. And the community as a whole, as a collective that makes decisions together, is prioritizing the autonomy of the individual. Mm -hmm. However, in the same breath, the individual is is taught to and in understanding their capacity, their relationship with that love that we talked about in the Wonder Woman episode and tapping into that selfless kind of love mm -hmm. and that interconnectedness, ready to sacrifice yeah. of themselves when, for the greater good. When the community can facilitate transformation of individuals. Exactly. That's what uh, results from it. And I think a part of that is people leading by example. I mean, in in this movie in particular, you have characters like Tony and Steve, who are both very good leaders where in their respective uh, places that they are in the story. Yeah, I love and... the story structure in that regard. Yeah. I love the way that Tony shows up, and I love the way that Steve shows up, and I love that they're looking out for their little yeah, band of people constantly. Yeah. Like every decision they make is looking out for the people around them. And as a like a person in a leadership yeah, they, they're both trying to balance looking out for the people around them as well as protecting the world, right? Mm -hmm. It isn't like just one or the other. And I think consistently, Tony's character in a leadership role appears more with respect to Spider-Man mm -hmm. 
than anything else in the movies, which I think is very well done. Well, I, I think and that Steve, the... and Steve often shows up as a a sort of role model for other characters, like particularly Bucky and Sam that we talked about in last episode for Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yeah, uh, I, even Natasha, no, of Wanda. course, yeah, a lot of characters. Yeah. I mean, he influences more than Tony, I think. But in, in the closest sense, I think it's Falcon and uh, the Winter Soldier. I think to, to end, I wanted to quote from one of Ursula Le Guin's, and I've, we've t- spoken of some of her writing before, but she has a short story called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And it's a very short story. It can't be more than three pages or something like that. It's almost like a thought experiment in short story form where the premise is that there is this utopian village called Omelas in this fictional kingdom, which is full of friendship and joy and prosperity and wealth and wellness. But all of this is dependent on one child being locked in a basement in miserable conditions, treated poorly and neglected and etc. And everyone in the village is fully aware of the existence of this child. The condition for them to continue their prosperity is that not even a single kind word can be spoken to the child. The child must continue to be mistreated. Nobody can intervene. And every member of this village is informed of the existence of the child at a young age. And they have to be complicit in this in order for the the collective to continue prospering. Now, I wanted to read the ending of it because I think that in the vein of the the rest of this episode, it raises a very interesting question. It's not a conclusion, but it's something for everyone to think about personally. So the, the ending paragraph reads as such, quote, At times, one of the adolescent girls or boys who go to see the child does not go home to weep or rage, does not in fact go home at all. She's talking about this in the context of previously having discussed how the adolescent children will be taken to see the child and told, look, this child is here suffering for the rest of us to be okay, and they'll, you know, go home and weep and rage and be disgusted by it, but not know what to do. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, the quote continues, Also, a man or a woman much older falls silent for a day or two and then leaves home. These people go out into the street and walk down the street alone. They keep walking and walk straight out of the city of Omelas through the beautiful gates. They keep walking across the farmlands of Omelas. Each one goes alone, youth or girl, man or woman. Night falls. The traveler must pass down village streets between the houses with yellow-lit windows and on out into the darkness of the fields. Each alone, they go west or north towards the mountains. They go on. They leave Omelas. They walk ahead into the darkness, and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist. But they seem to know where they are going, the ones who walk away from Omelas. I think that this is a fascinating line to end on. From what I understand of the story, when any kind of there's any kind of sacrifice presented for the sake of some sort of common good, there's a choice to be made between an individual and the collective, but There's also a secondary choice to be made about whether someone decides to engage with that choice or not. 
by moving by removing oneself from the from making the choice one way or another it's essentially a sacrifice of one's own potential right where you're risking yourself your understanding of what's what can happen for the sake of a principle so in this case what she's describing some people remain vexed by this question of what is right for me to let this child suffer and to benefit from that along with everyone else or to give up the good of everyone else for the sake of this one child whereas other people decide that this choice is inherently wrong or this this shouldn't be the way things are and rather than choosing the good of the child over the group they decide to the child. They, yeah they decide to seek out something new entirely mm-hmm. right and they don't know where that could necessarily lead there's a risk to themselves in doing so they don't know whether or not they're ever going to be able to have that same kind of prosperity that they would within the the society and they also don't know to what degree they're going to suffer they could suffer just as badly as the child is currently suffering but at the end of the day i think it's an interesting parallel to the cap the choice that at least the choice that the avengers make consistently throughout the movie where they aren't aware of what thanos is doing mm-hmm. they don't know what's going to happen to them if they don't proactively choose to sacrifice vision for example mm-hmm. right if they proactively choose to leave vision alive and risk the fact that thanos can now get the stone or they can proactively choose to kill vision and remove that risk but they choose to not make that choice well, they look and for an alternative they look solution. for an alternative solution yeah. they say okay well we can buy time try and separate the stone from vision and then destroy it they make that choice but they don't know how it's going to turn out that choice ends up costing them they're unprepared when thanos does arrive and they fail but it's the principle of making the choice against having to like trade lives trade lives essentially says. right yeah so i think it's an interesting thing to think about both on a personal level uh when it comes to one's own interacting with other people treating people with kindness versus uh sometimes i mean it's not set up in a fantasy world where your goodness depends on someone else's suffering but economically speaking the world has a lot of trade-offs to it i think probably i don't know ursula guin sounds like she's writing this from a social perspective with respect to how we think about the suffering of others mm-hmm. in our society and not just on a personal level so yeah. i think it is an interesting question um and it, obviously it's left unresolved because she's the way she writes it the, the people don't know what is a better choice yes but they commit to going out and searching for it yes as opposed to being content with the terrible choice that they currently have yeah or even not content but just complicit not not, not even complicit just like mortified stuck yes. in place you yeah know? trapped trapped yeah wait so okay our mom is here she watched the movie with us last night what's something that you liked it literally it can be anything it first be thing the, that pops into your head the eyebrows of a character i always like wakanda i think it's beautifully done agree i also agree <laughs> thank you thank you this has been our mother <laughs> oh my when i first watched this movie in theaters it blew me away for many different reasons and it was a very unique experience in terms of films that i've watched in the movie theater i'm probably always going to remember it a combination of my expectations being very low and being completely blown out of the water and also just genuine choices that the movie made 
But and and upon rewatch, I think some of that emotion is lost because you expect what's going to happen next. But to this day, every time I watch this movie, I think I've seen this maybe ten times at this point. Three moments in the movie are guaranteed serotonin hit directly to the center of my brain, and those three moments are. And I know that you're you can jump in on this, yeah, but sure. the first one is the guardian's entrance where yeah. bruce picks up the burner phone and the music starts playing and in the movie theater you knew you knew what was coming yeah as soon as you hear the, the 80s music i always forget about it i think oh maybe it's not that great and then i watch it again and it just straight up gives me chills just this rush of adrenaline because yeah. you know what's going to happen and the build-up is so great so one and vision are, are fighting the children of thanos right yeah and I love the way it's set up where Wanda is standing in front of the train tracks and she's ready to throw down, but, you know, she's kind of outnumbered. Yeah. And the train starts rattling and it moves past. And then there's this figure in the back and the yeah. music cuts in, like, after they throw the yeah. thing and he catches it and the music cuts in. Well, that's, I think, what I really like about this movie is how it paces itself with the moments of victory mm -hmm. like throughout most of the movie because it's a movie about them losing mm -hmm. there are always brief moments of victory that are quickly lost in the but the, the two moments are like so well executed with the build-up and a sense of dread with the the coming in of the hero cuts to avengers music from the first movie mm -hmm. like alan silvestri's original score uh, the first one is the one where Steve shows Steve up, shows up and after it's, the train. It's so great because it's the first time you've seen him since Civil War. And then the, the again, the next one. This one, the shot where the Bifrost opens yeah. and Thor steps out. And like the, the, the animation of him catching the hammer yeah. is so satisfying with the music. Like for the only point in the whole movie where the Avengers music plays. Yeah. Where he shows up in Wakanda. That's, I think, the best moment in the MCU for me. You have this amazing looking shot of Thor with his like new shiny armor and his new axe and his flowing cape with, yeah and his like electric body or whatever with like with like the Thor his force electric no, body not, not, not like in a <laughs> like his body is emitting electricity or whatever oh my god okay we're keeping that in for posterity <laughs> yeah yeah you get what I mean I get what you I mean I mean he also has an electric body let's be fair but the fact that it's Thor with a big glowing axe and he's got a tree beside him and a raccoon with a machine gun and that they're their reinforcements and they just appear in this uber dramatic moment. Just the fact that that exists in a film is so satisfying in like a primordial, like the lizard back of my brain. Yeah, the lizard brain is just so satisfied by that. It's so great. One of the things I really love about this movie is the fact that it has so many characters on screen all the time. And somehow the writing manages to make everyone feel in character, even though they're all in completely new and unprecedented scenarios. There are so many of them. Like the fact yeah. that each character feels independent and, and their own individual flavor, even when they only have one or two lines, is just extremely impressive to me from a writing perspective as someone who really values characterization and stories. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the things that I found so impressive was that it made me care about characters that previously I didn't really know much or feel much about, yeah. like Wanda and Vision. Yeah. But then also it reminded me how much I loved characters that I already really cared about, like Peter and Gamora and the rest of the Guardians. Something that I really loved as far as the characterization was 
Thor. I think coming out of Ragnarok, his character was in a very interesting place and yes. could be taken in different directions. How broken he was in this movie was very compelling. and Also very well acted. Yeah, very well acted. Just as far as characterizations go, I thought Thor was very much in character for for someone who is in a position of like such complete loss. It's really <laughs> interesting to see a character still be in character, but kind of be entirely emotionally devastated at yeah. the same time. Yeah, and he still feels like Thor. Yes. Even though it, in the next movie, he does not feel like Thor at all. As an extension, I think, because you brought up Thor and it reminded me a, a character detail that I really loved, which is indicative of all of the character writing in the movie, is... First of all, I loved all of Thor's scenes with Rocket. Yeah. But I especially love that moment where there's the whole joke about Rocket being the captain and Thor is looking sad. You know, looking sad in the corner and Rocket is like, "Okay, time to be the captain." And Rocket's template for what it means to be the captain is to go and ask Thor to talk about his feelings, which is such a, a great detail in the context of Rocket's only example for captaincy and leadership being Peter Quill. Because Rocket as a character is, is not, that's not his first impulse for yeah. everything you've seen of him. So I think I just bring that up because I think that that kind of attention to detail and character writing is so indicative of the movie as a whole. Like yeah. I love the the bit where when Gamora asks Peter to to swear that he'll kill her if anything happens. Yeah, she, she makes him swear on his yeah, mother. That, that right? was a really powerful moment. It's yeah. a very powerful moment because you have two movies proving to you over and over again that that is the single most important thing that Peter could give his word on. Yeah. The movie didn't have to write in character details like that, but it did over and over time and again. And yeah. it was just very personally gratifying mm -hmm. to me in that vein. I love this movie for committing to the high romance. I think mm -hmm. that very few, we've talked about this, the two of us personally before, very few MCU movies commit to romance as a genre. They have wholesome romantic subplots, um, some better written than others. But they don't have the kind of like Zorro. Well, not just Zorro, the like the, the 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 over the top like swelling music. The swelling music kind of tragedy, but also you know we're action heroes, but also yeah. you can see in our eyes how much we truly devastatingly love each other. Stuff and yeah, like you know, a, like a the ending of Pride and Prejudice or like a. Like Pirates of the Caribbean is a great yeah, example. Yeah, or like, but or Han, okay, I think actually the best example is like Han and Leia and Empire Strikes yeah, Back. Yeah, exactly. There you go. That's the kind of high romance that this movie commits to, and I think that it's never like a here's this adventure and these characters are going through all these emotions and you know like looking deeply into each other's eyes for yeah i think yeah. the the only property in the mcu that had come close to doing something like that had been the guardians because again genre wise it was very much patterned after star wars and like that kind of space opera yeah. type thing and all the han leia beats were there already and i do appreciate that in the scene on nowhere in the collector's den like the lighting and the camera work and all of that is very reminiscent of the scene in the carbonite chamber in empire it managed to do that because i think of all the M the movies in the mcu this one is uniquely very much like a sweeping fantasy epic yeah it feels a lot um, like lord of the rings like lord of the rings the where you too, yeah, yeah the music too and all of the locations where you go to these weird places that you've never seen before mm -hmm. and they're kind of spooky and grand i mean you literally have like a forge of the gods and exactly. like a dwarf and yeah exactly so i've i've always really enjoyed those elements of this mm -hmm. movie 
As far as MCU movies go, this one is quite stylized, and so a lot of the costuming and the hair and makeup is quite stylized. But it does such a seamless job of marrying like the space aesthetic with the real world and different parts of the real world aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It has such a strong use of color and set piece and. You said this really well last night that if you focus on any given character for too long, they end up looking a little bit dorky. But at the same time, any given character at any given point just looks really good. The special effects are there's so much of it consistently throughout the movie. The detailing is really good where it matters. Yes. And any kind of mistakes that are there are you don't really notice them. So it's just it's just very very impressive. The lighting work in this movie, even though I know one hundred percent that majority of this is shot on green screen, it looks really vivid. It doesn't have that strange blurred quality that a lot of CGI has when、mm. it's heavy CGI. Steve Rogers' best look is his nomad look, <laughs> barring none. I will. That is the、oh, kill I will die mentioned... on. I think one of the major reasons I cannot. Forgive Endgame for anything is because they divested him of this look. <laughs> they shaved his beard. <laughs> no, you mentioned space opera, and it reminded me of the Flash Gordon joke. Yeah, and I think one、right. of my favorite things about this movie is its ability to have a lot of levity despite its seriousness as a film. It's objectively, yeah, and、nature. and I think it it fits because I need. I think a lot of times people criticize Marvel movies for having unnecessary, overloaded humor and quippiness. And Endgame was kind of the worst example of that for me, of just feeling like it's shoehorned in and unnatural.、Um, it doesn't fit what's happening. Whereas Infinity War feels like it has a lot of humor, but it feels a lot more like the characters are being genuine with it, where they're either trying to lighten the mood or they're trying、uh, to cope, trying to cope, or they're just saying things that are just funny inherently because that's who they are. I mean, I he makes a Flash Gordon joke. I love the joke with Mister Clean, Mister Clean, or stuff like that because it feels like a normal thing to say. It's just a funny thing to say. So,、yeah. for example, the fact that no one in space knows what a raccoon is, and so everyone consistently just calls Rocket random other things,、yeah. or also related to Rocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah like Yondu calls him Rat. Yeah, but or also related to Rocket that moment where he like randomly runs into Bucky on the battlefield,、uh-huh. right? And his first impulse is to ask for the arm. That's a great fan servicey callback to、yeah. the running joke that Rocket has this obsession with people's prosthetic limbs. But it doesn't end up feeling really forced or unnecessary, and the movie doesn't have so much of it that it detracts from the main storyline. Exactly. Well, you can do fan service where you are expertly weaving in valid character details throughout a story. Yeah. And you can do fan service where it's like, Haha, remember when that happened?、Yeah. And then you're literally standing there watching that happen. Yeah, it's like wink, 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 nudge, wink, nudge. nudge, nudge. Let's travel back in time to this scene that we've already seen. I think you've already mentioned how much you hate Bucky's wig in this movie. There's just that one、times. wig. Everyone else is okay. As far as memeability, I mean, this is one of the most memed movies in history. I think. Yes. <laughs> There were just so many Thanos quotes, and all of them are amazing. This is something that I really loved about the movie, which I was talking to you guys about last night. I just really like that, as serious of a movie it is, as it is, it really has that classical like cheesiness where、yes. it's like well preserved. You know, it's like refined aged cheesiness. Well, it's, it's like it's like, very it's, like Lord of the Rings, like Star Wars. Yeah, you know, like, it's like the you know. Hob- they're taking the hobbits to Isengard. You know, it's like 
uh, today is not this day. Yeah. Like, it's got all this over-the-top dialogue, especially with Thanos. Yeah. Where he feels like a real villain, theatrical villain. Yes. Well, I think that's a great place to end off. Much to think about mm. as we started. The terrible Yoda, wait. <clears throat> mm. Much to think about. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that this was an enjoyable episode after our abrupt two-week hiatus. If you're a huge fan of Endgame, we deeply apologize for all of this. This our- is not a personal attack on you. If you have, as always, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, or ideas, please feel free to share in the comment section of the YouTube version of this podcast. If you're listening on Spotify, you can hit me up wherever I've posted or promoted this. We'll see you next week.